You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geiser. This month, we're reading Social Emotional Learning and the Brain by Marilee Springer. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club. Today, we are going to be starting with a game that we have played before called Show Me You Know Me. Laura will answer a question, and so will I, and hopefully you all out there will get to learn a little bit more about us, too. Okay, here we go. My initial reaction when I get sick is to just deal with it and eventually shake it off. Go to the doctor ASAP. Become a drama queen and want to be pampered. Or use home remedies to get better. Ooh. Okay, I don't remember the exact wording, but I'm going to say that you... Because you're a mom and you don't have time to be going to the doctor or being a big baby, you deal with it and eventually shake it off. That is correct. Um, And yeah, I also have this complex about when you're sick and you have to take time off of work. Mm -hmm. My sister and I talk about this a lot because sometimes I think this is more of a generational opinion and one that is maybe even handed down from your parents. And I feel like my mom, she always had a lot of guilt about staying home from work. And so it's like I kind of inherited that. And I think when you work in the schools, it's even worse because you have things going on all the time. So you're like, oh, I really can't miss that group again. You know, we were just off last Monday for a holiday and now I'm not going to be there or If you have an important IEP scheduled that day, it's like sometimes I would find myself just pushing through and going even when I was like visibly sick. Oh, yeah. Because it just felt like, what can you do? And I don't know. I wish I feel like that's a societal thing. I wish that would change because when you're sick and then you feel guilty on top of it because you stayed home, it's the worst. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. The SLP I worked with at my last school when she was just starting out and she was trying to tell her mom about how when she was sick, she, if she missed a day, even though she got paid time, that then she had to make it up. You know, she had to make up all those sessions. And her mom was like, so you really don't get any right. time off, right? Because if you have to go back and make it up, <laughs> you don't get any time off. We're not teachers. We don't have subs that step in. So my opinion became it's not my responsibility to make that up. It's the district that I work with. It's their responsibility to make up that time. So I'm not going to push myself to make it up by the end of the year if I can't. It's a multifaceted problem, but I also think it's a women's thing. So this is like a gender equity thing. It's like a workload thing because I think as a woman, as a mom, as a partner, Who's going to pick up the slack at home if you're sick and laying down all day? Normally, you just work through it. I work through it. You still have to make dinner for your child. You still have to give them their bath. Yeah. Then it prolongs your illness, but it is what it is. Yeah. (laughs) You got too many people depending on you. Exactly. Okay. Well, which one are you, Laura? Because now I'm very curious. Oh, I'm I'm the same. Mm -hmm. I have been to work with full laryngitis, like no voice. I used to be notorious for losing my voice at least once a year. And when I worked in person in the schools, I was sick nonstop. Yeah. It's awful. And now at this point, I haven't, I've told you, I haven't been sick since November, 2021. So a year and a half. You're glowing. (laughs) That must be why. (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, I was just telling you the same thing that when I switched to teletherapy a year and a half ago, I am sick so much less. I still have a child who goes to school and comes home with all these germs. But man, there is nothing like, you know, you know, when I would feel this feeling sitting at the kidney table you know, directly across from a child. And when they just have like <laughs> snot running down their face, or they're sneezing or so visibly sick, and I'm just looking at them like, it's just a ticking time bomb. When am I going to get oh. those symptoms <laughs> any minute? Oh, my gosh. And then you're furiously disinfecting. And, uh. Oh, have you ever had the yeah. spit droplet from a child doing our tick just uh. land in your mouth <laughs> or in your eyeball? <laughs> it's done. <laughs> like, zinc. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. All right. I got one. The thing I spend most of my money on is food, clothes, beauty and health, or trips and experiences. It's a toss-up for me between A and C because I know you eat very healthy and I'm sure that you are spending a lot of money on food because the food that is good for you tends to cost more. But I know you're very into your health and beauty, yeah, like... I know you get your hair done and stuff, but the health component, I think I'm going to go with C, beauty and health. Okay. I would say absolutely A, food. Yes. (laughs) I'm including my family. We eat a lot at home. We don't eat a lot out. Buy a lot of organic and it is incredibly expensive. It's constantly a battle trying to budget for food. In terms of, yeah, my beauty and health, I do probably spend a lot on supplements and stuff, but I'm pretty basic. I don't buy expensive cosmetics. I'll sometimes go many, many months without getting my hair done. I do let that stuff slide, but who knows how much I'm spending on vitamins at this point. Yes. (laughs) It's pretty crazy. My gosh. Well, for me, I guess I would have to say A. You know, sometimes things do add up and with inflation the way it's been lately, oh yeah, it's not getting better. But I'm a vegetarian and so I feel like my food bills are less because I'm not buying meat and meat tends to be more expensive. Yeah. I was going to say my sister, there was a time where she was dating somebody who was really health conscious and they were living together and they were really being healthy, working out all the time, eating great food. And she exclusively was shopping at Whole Foods. And I will never forget one time I was like, just tell me how much your monthly food bill is when you shop at Whole Foods exclusively. And I think she told me it was $1,900 or $2,000 a month. Oh, And wow. this was nine years ago. <laughs> yeah. And it was just her and one other person. So, you know, it adds up. For sure. Yeah. My parents are Whole Foods devotees and I can't imagine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, don't know. I know. I'm a, more of a Trader Joe's girl myself. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or Sprouts. I'll oh, like, yeah. I'll take Sprouts over Whole Foods because of the prices. Oh, yeah. I think that will wrap it up. Yep. <laughs> we went way, way off track yeah. today in our show me, you know me game. But stick around after the break. We'll get into this week's chapter. At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. 
We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the SLP Book Club. Today, we are talking about Chapter 6, Relationship Skills from Social-Emotional Learning and the Brain by Marilee Springer. (laughs) Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Oh, let's get into it. This is a good chapter, everyone. Lots to learn. Maybe not so new to us as SLPs, but there's always more to learn, I think. Chapter six is about learning how to simply handle relationships with others in the classroom and in life. So it opens with a story about a teacher named Sally who was coming back to teaching after a 15-year break. She really liked her room to be neat and tidy with the desks and perfect rows and like bright bulletin boards. But Sally started to notice that students in other classrooms were sitting in groups with desks shoved together, sort of haphazardly, and like some students were even sitting on the ground. And, you know, Sally was like, how can the students learn if they're sitting on the ground? (laughs) Um, But when it was time for her principal to visit her room, she asked for them to observe on a day when the students were doing cooperative learning. Other teachers told her that, you know, their students did most of their work in groups and they were more motivated that way and learned more. So Sally decided to follow suit and use learning groups in her classroom. So she just kind of grouped the students together, provided a task and let them get to work. And of course, it was pure chaos and the students were fighting over responsibilities and interrupting one another constantly. So the school apparently has an SEL social emotional learning coach, which I have never heard of before. I couldn't believe it. I was like, (laughs) what school is this with the budget that affords for an SEL coach? (laughs) But, you know, again, I feel this is probably a hypothetical, but maybe not. Anyway, the coach came to the rescue and explained that this was just a bump in the road and collaborators are not born, they're made. So handling relationships with others in the classroom might not actually be so simple as the skills that are required to establish and maintain healthy and rewarding relationships, you know, include communicating clearly, listening well, cooperating with others, resisting inappropriate social pressure, negotiating conflict constructively, and seeking an offer of help when needed. So really, this is not so simple of a task. These things get easier with age and development. And it's also better if students have the first three social emotional learning competencies, which are social awareness, self management, and self awareness. So learning can be lonely, you know, overall, when students have a hard time understanding something, they can sometimes just give up. But when working with a group of students, they have someone besides the teacher to turn to for questions, problem solving, and academic conversations. So collaboration is less about a physical grouping and more of an intellectual interaction, pure coaching situation, or a high challenge, low threat opportunity to stretch student thinking through sort of bouncing ideas off of one another. And one strategy you can use to promote collaboration is teaming. So teaming can solve a number of problems and achieve a variety of purposes from the minor, such as making attendance easier to take to the significant, like making teaching and learning more fun and enabling students to give one another positive feedback. It also can help students learn and practice the emotional and social skills that are necessary for success in school and in life. And teaming can also give students a group to be with as they enter the room. When Mary Lee takes attendance, she will ask if students have 100% of their team members seated and ready to go and raise their hand and say yes, if this is the case. So she can easily see if somebody's missing. 
And then this also gives kids a good feeling of knowing that people are going to notice when they aren't there. And team members might also collaborate on homework, remind one another of upcoming assignments, and keep one another on task. So this would have been great for me to have. I don't know about you, Laura. (laughs) I really like the idea of turning our speech groups into teams. To call something a team makes it feel like, okay, we're all here. We work together. We support each other. You know, I even was thinking back on some groups where it would be great if kids were giving each other a lot of feedback on the way they say there are, you know, smooth speech, just all these different things if they felt like they were really working together. And like in the last episode, when we were talking about those norms, how I like that idea of at the beginning of the year, a group coming up with the norms, this could all be part of the same thing. We have a team name, you know, they could make a little poster of themselves and their team and the team members and what their norms are and what they're all working on. And, you know, just really providing that support to each other. I think it's really cute for speech. Yeah, I love that idea. It would add a little more motivation, maybe. Yeah. Oh, and you could have the teams compete against each other. (laughs) Oh, that's really motivating. I always like to add in a competitive (laughs) element. (laughs) Well... When putting teams together, you should make them as diverse as you can in terms of culture, skills, and personality. And you should keep them small, like between two and five students. You might want to take some steps to give teams an identity and enable them to operate effectively. So some suggestions are you can develop team norms. This will help everyone to work cooperatively, take turns speaking, whatever the group wants it to be. And you can even role play if you'd like. You can pick a team name. So this could be any theme you want. I know she suggested Wizard of Oz characters. It's really the sky is the limit for that. You can devise a team scorecard or chart. This can be used for self-assessment by maybe using a scale of like 1 through 10 on certain criteria like cooperation, participation, punctuality, homework completion. You can assign roles such as facilitator and leader. It's up to you how you want to do that. There are some additional activities you can do with students, giving the team some icebreaker questions to help them get to know each other better. You can consider team colors, a team handshake. That's pretty fun. Maybe a logo. (laughs) I love that. Students can even make up a cheer or choose a theme song for their team. So all of these things will really help them in the team identification process and can be a lot of fun. And the key to teams being successful is that they provide a sense of belonging that students feel. So it releases serotonin for calming and dopamine for focus and engagement. And, you know, as I was just talking to you, I realized that I have seen a teacher use teaming and it was a kinder teacher at my old K through eight school. And the thing about this teacher is that she was really close to retirement and she was pretty old school. She still, she had a piano, a stand-up piano in her room. She would play the piano and the kids would (laughs) sing. (laughs) Sometimes I would go in there to pull a kid and it would, all three kinder classes would be in her room singing, practicing for some show. You know, I know some teachers had issues with her because she was pretty set in her ways, but I think maybe she had attended some kind of professional development where they talked about teaming because I remember one year I went in her room and it was like the teams were all bear themes. So like one group of four were the honey bears and then there were the polar bears and the black bears. And it was just so cute. The panda bears. I was like, oh, that's pretty cute at the time. But now that we're talking about this, I'm like, oh, I see you. 
I see what you're doing with your teams. <laughs> uh, probably was really useful for kinder too. Yeah. Another strategy to promote collaboration is project-based learning. So this is a teaching method that uses complex real-world problems as the vehicle to promote student learning of concepts and different principles. Some norms for project-based learning are the problem should motivate students to seek out a deeper understanding of concepts. The problem should require students to make a reasonable decision and to defend the decision. And when used for a group project, the problem should have a level of complexity that requires multiple students to solve it. Collaboration is really at the heart of project-based learning, so students need to have relationship skills to make this a pleasant and memorable learning experience. So think of goal setting, organizational skills, self-motivation, teamwork, listening skills, conflict resolution. All of these things come into play as students manage projects and meet deadlines. Cooperative learning can also promote collaboration. So the brain learns best when we're interacting, talking, and collaborating. There are five elements that enable successful small group learning. Positive interdependence, which is when students feel responsible for their own piece in the group's effort. Face-to-face -face interaction, when students encourage and support one another. Individual and group accountability, when each student is responsible for doing their part and the group is accountable for meeting its goal. Group behaviors, when group members gain direct instruction in the interpersonal, social, and collaborative skills needed to work with others. And group processing, when group members analyze their own and the group's ability to work together. So of course, thinking about these things, obviously teamwork is so important on the job and I don't know. I remember lots of bumps. I wanted to talk to you specifically about teamwork, Laura, because I can remember bumpy group work from probably elementary school all the way up through grad school. There is always issues with teams. There is just something difficult about three or four students. I mean, for me, it was always that I was the one doing all the work. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty common. I would love to meet a person who was like, oh, my problem is I never did any of the work. Like, Well... <laughs> I am one of those people. I'm one of those people. Okay? Because in high school... Wow, here comes the truth. <laughs> I was in European history class, okay. and we had a group project, three of us. And on the day we were supposed to meet, it was like a Saturday. Something, I can't remember the specifics, but something came up, and I could not meet with my group. So they met, and then they told me what I was supposed to do, and I feel like I did it. And I got told on. Oh. One of my group members told wow. the teacher on me and said that I didn't do any of the work. Now, Adrian, we run a podcast together. <laughs> you know the level of work that I put in on things when I, you know, I am not somebody yes. who lets other yes. people down. I think of Gretchen Rubin's tendencies. I'm a um, an appeaser. I think that's what it's called. I always do things for other people mm. because I hate letting other people down. Mm. So yeah, I've, but I got in trouble. I got called out and told on. It's not like she told me, hey, I don't think you held this up. She went straight to the teacher and told him that I didn't deserve as good of a grade as her. Rude. <laughs> <laughs> I get this horrible feeling when I think about it. I'm sure everybody has a horror story about group work, you know, but I think that a lot of the suggestions that Marilee is making can help for these to be good experiences, if not even 
great learning opportunities because think about just our jobs, maybe as school-based SLPs, you know, we're part of the SPED team. So we have to work in a team all the time and everybody's responsible mm -hmm. for their own piece. You hope you have a good psych because so much of our job relies on the psych's results. You want your teacher, your SPED teachers to be good so that you guys can have a great working relationship, even like your OT, admin. So you know, just across the board, even if you end up working a corporate job, you know, you're always going to have to work in teams. So I was feeling merrily when she was talking about this. Well, me too. And I've done observations of students in class when they're working in teams. And I'm thinking of one gen ed kid who had a learning disability. And it is important for teachers when they are creating groups in class to be thinking of the skills and weaknesses of each kid and maybe making sure that those kids who are struggling a little bit are in a group with maybe a really bright but sensitive girl yeah. who can help get that kid involved. Because I can just remember watching him kind of just sit, not pay attention to what the rest of the group was saying. You know, maybe he was doodling on his piece of paper, you know, just not involved in any way. And there was nobody really supervising it or going around to make sure. I mean, other than me, and I was just supposed to be observing, you know, it's an interesting balance. Right, right. Yeah, it's definitely not easy. And, you know, we all know that teachers have a lot going on and to consider group dynamics on top of everything else. But, you know, again, as SLPs, we frequently work with groups. And I know that a large part of grouping is thinking about personalities, goals, level of, you know, difficulty of the goals or whatever. And it's like, there are so many things that go into a really good cohesive group. And when you get it, and you like nail that formula, it's such a good feeling. But it does take a lot of deep thinking to figure out the right fit. Yeah. So you can also consider the jigsaw strategy, which was developed at a desegregated school where there was a lot of tension among the white African-American and Hispanic students. The kids didn't really trust each other and they had preconceived notions about their abilities. So the jigsaw strategy was shown to reduce racial conflict and improve educational outcomes, including higher test scores, less absences and greater interest in school. So in the jigsaw strategy, students are divided up into different groups. And then one person, there's a topic that they're given, and each group is assigned a subtopic that all feeds into the same big umbrella topic. From each small group, one student is selected as the leader of the group. And the whole group learns about their little subtopic. And then the leader meets up with the other leaders from all the other groups, and they share their information and teach about their area of expertise. So everyone sort of becomes an important information resource and it teaches students about empathy and engagement as they realize that everyone in the group and in the classroom is interdependent. So it's pretty interesting. And if you're interested in creating a jigsaw classroom for yourself, there are 10 steps that you can check out on page 148 of the book. Communication skills are obviously a key component in helping students to handle relationships. So this can include oral and written communication. And one suggested strategy to work on communication is called No Phone, New Friend Friday. Uh, one high school in Iowa 
has a phone-free lunch hour on Fridays. So every student gets a little color card when they enter the cafeteria and the color card tells them which table they need to sit at and they sit at a table with new students that they're not really friends with and there's conversation starters on the table. So they get to know other people. And the students reported that they have a friendlier and kinder school because they have gotten to know one another better. You can also have students write in their journals after a cooperative learning project or a teaming project. And this can provide some time for personal reflection. Some prompts that you might use are, did my group reach its goal? How much did I participate in the project? And how did I feel when working on this project? Role-playing is another helpful way. Of course, Marilee loves role-playing, so you know she was about to suggest it. (laughs) (laughs) Role-playing can help students with communication skills, encourage social engagement, and foster respectful interaction. And it really provides valuable practice for students to sort of hone these new skills and also to see situations from another person's perspective. Strategies that build relationships can model for students how to interact in ways where there is a back and forth communication. So a strategy you can use to build relationships is brainstorming. And that's just exactly what you know brainstorming to be. (laughs) It requires a variety of social emotional skills, including careful listening, taking turns speaking, prioritizing ideas, and respectfully communicating with others. So brainstorming is a really adaptable task you can do. You can use it in a small group. You can use it as a whole class activity. It can be content related or just general. It can also be helpful to assign roles for students if you need that to sort of keep the discussion focused on the topic of your choice. You can use classroom seating challenges as well. There's a lot of anxiety around where to sit in a new situation. And one eighth grade teacher has students sit at round tables and puts them in groups of five. So every day he has students decide where to sit based on just a different problem-solving exercise. And you can also have students sit based on alphabetical order, their birthday, or even their height. And this is just a good way for teachers to get to know a lot about their students as well as students to get to know about each other. I didn't think about it when I was reading it, but that would be a funny thing to do with your speech groups. You know how when they come in, they always sit in the same seat that they always sit in? Oh, yeah. But if you were like, oh, no, no, no. Today we're doing it by height. (laughs) And then they have to like go around comparing. Yes, so funny. (laughs) Or just having a different thing every time they come in and mixing it up. I really like when we're playing a game, like a board game, I try to do that. Like who's the oldest? Who's the youngest? Who's the tallest? And that's a good way too. So it's not just the same kids going first. Yeah. The book also mentions assigned seating at lunch, a strategy that's being used at a K through 12 school in Wisconsin. So this removes the question of who am I going to eat lunch with and some of that anxiety we talked about. Students are sat at tables of eight with a teacher present and the teacher's job is just to help facilitate conversation amongst the students. And this has resulted in less bullying because students who know each other better are less likely to bully each other. We can also consider restorative practices and peacemaking circles. So there's a program called Playworks that helps schools deal with difficulties that some kids experience during recess for whatever reason. So they help schools figure out what works well on their playground. And they focus on safety, engagement, and empowerment, incorporating conflict resolution, leadership, fairness, and good sportsmanship into the plan. And they feel that play is not just a fun activity kids happen to do. It's a developmentally critical behavior through which kids learn. 
Restorative practices can be used with all kinds of conflicts, both in and out of the classroom, and you can use it to replace disciplinary practices. You can use strategies that help build community and repair relationships that have been damaged by conflict. This approach depends on social emotional skills as students need to recognize their own emotions, control those emotions, while also recognizing the emotions of other students involved in the conflict, and then work to solve the problem. A good definition of restorative practices can be described as specific practices inspired by indigenous values that build community, respond to harm or conflict, and provide circles of support for community members. So an interesting practice called classroom circles involves students forming a circle, and it's strongly suggested that the first couple of times you form a circle with your class, you just sort of build relationships with a sense of community to help students feel safe, like don't get too heavy right off the bat with this. And then once the class is comfortable, you can move on to conflict resolution. So if you use a peacemaking circle, the class and the teacher gather and they listen to the victim and the offender and try to help find a way for the offender to make up for whatever harm they did. You might want to begin the circle by doing some mindfulness activities, maybe listening to some music or focusing on a spot on the floor while deep breathing. And then each person who wants to talk can hold an object like a talking stick or, you know, whatever thing you want to use as a talking piece. And the person who is holding that gets to talk and nobody else can interrupt them. And you can, again, start the circle by asking some fun questions. What's your favorite color? What's your favorite music? And then when students become more comfortable, the questions or talking points can go deeper. And this is a really adaptable strategy. You can use it for all grade levels. It can take as little as five minutes. Respect, relationships, and community are at the heart of this strategy. There's a website listed near the end of the chapter that you can check out if you're interested in setting up a restorative practices school. There's a lot more to it than what we've covered today. So if your interest is piqued, then go check that out. At one of my schools, we had a restorative justice program. We had an amazing restorative justice teacher, and this was at an elementary school, but the classes would kind of cycle through kind of like you would with a music program or dance, you know, they would spend three months in restorative justice. You know, it was a school where there were a lot of conflicts. I think that this practice was just really incredible. And even I feel like having her there spilled Mm -hmm. over to the school environment. You know, when you go to those schools and you feel a lot of tension and like teachers talking behind each other's backs or talking about admin a lot versus one where you go and you feel like everyone's really supportive of each other. I mean, she would run our restorative justice teacher would run team building activities. And it was just the school that I worked at where I felt the most inclined to go to those Friday after school lunches (laughs) or events with all the other teachers because I just loved and it was a massive school. So I can remember us one time lining up chairs around our whole big auditorium, all the teachers, all the staff, everybody. And I think we were just going around and saying like one word about how we felt. But you know, to everybody, all eyes on you to say one word when you're just the speech therapist. It was very connecting, though. She created a really good school environment. I mean, there were a lot. The principal also was responsible for creating a really good culture at that school amongst the teachers. But I just really admired that program and liked the impact it had on my students. Well, I'm jealous. I wish I'd been to a school with something like that. That sounds great. 
Well, there are some if-then scenarios you might encounter in your classroom. So just some ideas, you know, if students are being left out of teamwork or group work, then introduce a jigsaw session that will make everyone equal partners in the learning. If behavior is causing harm to a student, then try a restorative circle or restorative justice questions to get to the reason for the behavior. If you have students who have had traumatic experiences and don't want to work in cooperative groups, then try paired activities like think, pair, share before assigning students to work in larger groups and also provide more structure to your group activities. So overall, teaching students to handle relationships with their peers can be challenging but they need to learn to work with others as this capability will affect their future personal and professional relationships. And peer acceptance is more important to students in academic content anyway. So it is helpful to just get your mind, you know, use some of that empathic skill we've been talking about, perspective taking, and remember what it's like to be an elementary school kiddo or a middle schooler or a high schooler and how important relationships with your friends are. And there's a lot we can do as teachers and educators to help our students out with that. I wanted to mention something I heard from a speech therapist in my district, an idea that came to my mind when I was reading this, but I didn't know where to mention it. Sure. She said, since she had multiple schools, she started doing a pen pal program between her students at different schools, which I just think that sometimes for kids... Kind of like journaling, writing to a pen pal. I mean, if you were doing it through the speech therapist, you wouldn't get so in depth. But it is interesting if I think kids would really like it a little bit older elementary or middle school to have a pen pal at another school and be thinking about kids at other schools and what it's like over there and the culture at that school and all these things. I just thought it was such a cool idea. I don't work at a school anymore or multiple schools, so I can't implement it. But if anyone else does, let me know how it goes. (laughs) There might be that special person listening out there. (laughs) That would be great for like language kids. Yeah. And all you have to do is provide some cute paper and stickers and envelopes, and then they can write really fun letters back and forth to each other. And you could provide a little bit of prompting. I don't know. So cool. Wow. Great idea, Laura. I love that. Okay. Well, I hope that this chapter has given everybody out there some good ideas and inspiration as always and stay tuned for our next episode when we will be discussing chapter seven responsible decision making so see you next time bye laura bye adrian the slp book club is not just a podcast it's a community Go to facebook.com slash groups slash the SLP book club to join the discussion after each episode. Want even more of the SLP book club? We've made all the resources for this book, including chapter summaries and visuals available for free on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the SLP book club to download these great materials. To learn more about the SLP book club, go to the SLP You can contact us by emailing hello at the SLP Follow us on Instagram at SLP underscore book club. Find us on TikTok at the SLP book club. 